Past Dark is intended for adults only. Listener discretion is advised. This is part two of a two-part series. accident occurred on August 2nd, 1953, at 7 in the morning, less than 20 miles from their homes. Betty Jack died immediately, and Skeeter was gravely injured. The other two in the car had little to no injuries, and the driver of the other car, a soldier who had fallen asleep at the wheel, was treated for a knee laceration and released the same day. But the details were, to Skeeter at least, unbelievable. The car had been sideswiped on the driver's side, but the driver was completely unscathed. Betty Jack had been on the passenger side, in the back seat, but had been by far the most injured. It made no sense, and from that moment, nothing much would for years after. Fans picked among the wreckage for souvenirs, and Skeeter would later find their silver crosses, whose chains had broken upon impact, flung into a ditch. She fell into a deep depression so severe she doubted her ability to ever recover. Her grief was so all-encompassing it smothered everything as if a glass bell jar had settled down over her life. She could sense Betty Jack's spirit inside of her, and then at other times feel herself outside of her own body, wandering and lost. She could also sense Betty Jack's confusion at her own sudden death, felt her searching for her, both of them lost in an impenetrable darkness. And the darkness was only beginning. Days after her accident, her family came to the hospital to collect her, but were told they had to pay $50 for the cost of her care before she could be released. They decided to head back home, take a loan for the money, and return the next day. But by that time, Skeeter had disappeared. Betty Jack's mother had spirited her away, promising the doctors that she had already arranged for Skeeter, who still had a dangerous blood clot lodged under her left eye, among other injuries, to receive the very best of care in a hospital closer to their own home. And just like that, Skeeter was now in the care of the Davis family, 
whether she liked it or not. And Mrs. Davis decided against common decency, sanity, and all the evidence that Skeeter was completely to blame for the accident and focused all her rage and already abusive tendencies on her. As they drove home that day, Mrs. Davis insisted on playing the radio, still broadcasting the incorrect, but yet to be amended information that both girls, not just Betty Jack, were dead on arrival. The Davises then insisted on chopping for a dress to bury their daughter in, as Skeeter, still bandaged and frail, looked on. Directly after that, the morgue, where Mrs. Davis forced Skeeter to view the body, and then home, to Betty Jack's own room, and then a blur. She remembers very little of the funeral. Friends later told her that she tried to lift Betty Jack out of her coffin. She collapsed and was taken to bed, back to Betty Jack's room, to a cloister where she no longer controlled her own life. Still a very young and naive 22 at the time of the accident, kept away from her family, Skeeter was now trapped with a woman intent on exacting a diabolical revenge for the death of her daughter and a cowering father who rarely dared to intervene. Mrs. Davis endlessly drummed into Skeeter that it was her fault her daughter was dead, that it was her job to carry on Betty Jack's work, because, she said, it's only fair. I only had two daughters, and you killed one of ours. She would even claim that Skeeter had pushed a seat over onto Betty Jack during the accident, and that this was the real cause of death. She would tell Skeeter that because of her evil actions, her own family didn't love her, that the Davises were the only ones who did. Soon after she arrived at the Davises, she was forced to begin daily injections that kept her pliant and lost in a fog. In later life, she would track down the office where Mrs. Davis took her for these injections and discovered that it had been a dentist's office in 1953, a dentist who was a family friend of the Davises. Her only memories of being awake during the day in the long months after Betty Jack's death would be of the car rides with Mrs. Davis on her way to another injection. Mrs. Davis kept Skeeter's family away by telling them that her mental condition was too delicate and talking about anything at all was simply too much of a strain. Eventually, Mrs. Davis allowed Punzi to visit, but Skeeter's mother would tell her later that she barely spoke and stared off as if in a daze. Both of her parents were lost in an alcoholic netherworld at the time and would have been unable to mount a concerted effort to get their daughter back, who was chronologically, at least, an adult. Skeeter would have little to no contact with her family 
for the next three years. Her grasp on reality at this time was tenuous. She would find herself asking, Now, tell me again, how did we get killed? She would wander the house at night after the drugs wore off, the only time of the day where she enjoyed relative freedom, and wonder to herself, I wonder where the girls are. It's getting late. It don't take that long to drive back from Wheatley. She would jump out of bed at the sound of an approaching car, thinking it was the girls. She would wander the railroad tracks, all the spots Betty Jack would duck into to smoke cigarettes in secret after school. She waited for her to emerge out of the darkness and tell her it was all a terrible dream. This unreality was accompanied, day and night, by the Davis sisters. Mrs. Davis insisted on playing their music on repeat from her first waking moment till she retired for the night. Skeeter would wake up to the sound of familiar voices and think, The girls are downstairs. I wonder why they don't come up and visit with me. Time lost all meaning for me, she wrote in her autobiography, Bus Fare to Kentucky in 1993. But, she says, it passed, nonetheless. Gradually, the cyclone of craziness in which I had been whirling began to lose its power over me. It abandoned me on a distant, unknown shore, where I scoured the landscape, picking up the scattered pieces of my mind wherever I could find them. In solitude, she rediscovered herself even while another was doing all she could to turn her into her dead daughter, even dressing her in Betty Jack's clothes. One day, it occurred to her as she stared into the mirror that while Betty Jack may be physically dead, she was spiritually dead, until Betty Jack's spirit came to live again through her. She said, There are moments, even today, when I feel this way. Her physical injuries healed, but her psychological wounds would remain for years. But music was still her calling, even if it manifested as a badly considered reunion with the talentless Georgia, Betty Jack's own sister. Mrs. Davis had warned Skeeter down with her insistence that the two reform, and after all, there was money to be made. And because the Davises were acting as her caretakers, they felt entitled to her share of the royalties as well as Betty Jack's, opening up a bank account that both Skeeter and Mrs. Davis had access to, even writing a will bequeathing all of Skeeter's earnings to themselves, with nothing at all provided for her own family. And money motivated the duo to hit the road a mere six months after the accident. Skeeter says she keeps this time in the darkest part of my memory. Their appearances were leaden, without joy. 
Skeeter's left eye was still dilated from her injuries. It was the same honky-tonks, the same songs, but nothing was the same. Georgia would never be the singer her sister had been, no matter how much she enjoyed the adulation. But things began to unravel as the lack of any hit by the new Davis sisters took the wind out of their sails, and despite appearing together on the Grand Ole Opry, time was beginning to run out for the duo and for Mrs. Davis. While in Nashville for their Opry appearance, the girls met Ray Price at a gathering at Ernest Tubbs' record shop. Ray was quick to notice the track marks that ran down both of Skeeter's arms, and being a veteran of the country music business, he assumed Skeeter was a junkie and told her she'd wind up like old Hank if she weren't careful, a reference to the already legendary Hank Williams, who had also died in 1953. Skeeter stammered and said, No, you don't understand. I'm seeing this doctor. And Ray said, Well, you need to switch doctors. This was a much-needed wake-up call and Skeeter would thereafter steadfastly refuse any more injections, to Mrs. Davis's dismay. She tried to convince Skeeter that her nerves were far too delicate to risk it, despite insisting that she was well enough to perform. Her protestations were to no avail, and awakening from the fog strengthened her. Shortly afterward, she was asked to come back to Nashville to record with Hank Snow, and without Georgia. This was another crack in the wall separating her from her own life, and a major leap forward creatively as well. Chad Atkins produced the sessions, and he encouraged Skeeter to try overdubbing, experimenting with her own voice. Singing over herself was so much like the original Davis sisters, so fitting for a woman who still felt connected to Betty Jack's spirit that it freed her. The single turned into what would become her first LP, titled I'll Sing You a Song and Harmonize Too. She would call herself, in tribute, Skeeter Davis. The fog had lifted, and her first solo record was a hit spawning two top 20 hits and providing the final leverage for Skeeter's escape. Set him free, set him free, for I love him, you see. Order in the court. She bought a car and began plotting her way out. It was by now 1955 and she decided that she was finally ready to visit Betty Jack's grave, her first visit since her death. She needed to pay her respects, and she was also interested in seeing the large memorial she had given Mrs. Davis money to have placed at the gravesite. She brought two older ladies from her church with her for emotional support. Walking towards the gravesite that day, Skeeter was horrified to find only a small, unworthy stone that read, merely, our beloved daughter, till we meet again. She collapsed on the grave, appalled that Betty Jack was still 
even in death, getting second best at the hands of her parents. In her despair, she heard one of the little old ladies say, Honey, didn't you know the Davises are building a new house? Despite all this, Skeeter still could not find it in herself to storm away from the Davises. She decided to start attending church again, hoping that a way would make itself known to her, still unwilling to trust her own instinct. And on that first day in church, just a few moments into the sermon, she began to hear a familiar voice. She strained to hear over the preacher, but there it was, Betty Jack. The voice was drifting just over her shoulder, and she began to hear the words. Oh dear Jesus, lead Skeeter away from here. Her next visit, she heard it again, and the next Sunday, still again. Soon she grew to accept the voice as real, and it only emboldened her in her faith that Betty Jack was still with her. And soon the exit was made for her, albeit not the most graceful one. She decided to marry a young man from her church and what could definitely be considered an arranged marriage. There were no I love yous, no real desire. Skeeter knew that she was a catch because of her money, and she also understood that marriage would afford her the most understandable and blameless way of leaving a situation that she knew was psychologically untenable. The marriage was passionless and took eight days to consummate. She doesn't even remember the wedding, to which her parents were not invited. Even in the wedding announcement, written by the Davises, they claimed her as their own daughter. Skeeter's mother, Punzi, upon reading the announcement, went for a drunken visit to Betty Jack's gravesite, crying, They stole Skeeter from me. Everything about the wedding and the subsequent honeymoon, planned unsurprisingly by Georgia, was uninspiring and gray but it also meant permanent freedom from the Davises. The RCA recording contract she and Betty Jack had entered into had ended. She was now free to embark on what would be the most successful era of her career. Ernest Tubb got in touch with her and was a major help in getting this next stage off the ground. She would become close with June Carter, who wasn't yet a cash, and she would call her the closest thing to a therapist she ever had. She also became tight with Bonnie Owens, Buck Owens' wife, and the ladies would help her through her loveless marriage on into her subsequent divorce. Chad Atkins continued to encourage her to trust her creative instincts, and she began to be more open and forceful about speaking up in the studio. She brought her youngest sister to live with her in Nashville, knowing that as the youngest child she had only ever known hand-me-downs and instability due to her parents' alcoholism. Skeeter bought her a new wardrobe, enrolled her in school, 
got her eyeglasses and dental work. The two roamed Nashville, shopping and laughing. She would remember this time as one of the happiest in her whole life. And then came Ralph Emery. Hello, this is Ralph Emery. And first, I'd like to tell you how pleased I am to be a part of the gold medal sales team. All of us, guests and crew, have really enjoyed each and every show we've done for Gold Medal Flower, and we look forward to... Graham Parsons and Roger McGuinn wrote the now infamous song Drugstore Truck Driving Man for Ralph Emery, who by that time was a famous all-night Nashville DJ who presented himself as something of a self-appointed gatekeeper of so-called real country music. And he had decided that the birds were not it. While in Nashville in 1968 to promote their radical swerve into country music, the sweethearts of the rodeo, the birds offended the old guard at the Opry by spontaneously departing from the program to play Graham's own composition, Hickory Wind, in dedication to his Tennessee-bred grandmother, instead of the previously agreed-upon Merle Haggard number. Somehow, this endearing gesture translated as an offense to the maniacally stayed Opry management, mainly because permission had not been granted. And you didn't just do something at the Grand Ole Opry, even for your granny. In fact, stories abound about the almost suffocating conformity expected of Opry performers and the steep consequences of disobedience, with Hank Williams Sr., Jerry Lee Lewis and Nico Case, among others, being banned for life, and Skeeter herself among a greater number who would be banned for shorter periods, but eventually allowed back into the fold. Such dysfunction is difficult to contend with for the uninitiated, and the birds, stumbling in long-haired off the plane from California, were guileless as they took to the stage where the audience began to boo them even before they sang a note. Skeeter, however, loved them and embraced them as they came off stage. It would be their only appearance on the Opry. A few days later, they paid the obligatory visit to Ralph Emery, who broadcast his all-night show on WSM and was part of the circuit for any visiting country performer. What followed is based on accounts of those who were there, as a tape of the broadcast has never been found. But the stories all agree. Emery played their track, You Ain't Going Nowhere, proclaimed that it wasn't country. Roger McGuinn protested, saying that the song was written by Bob Dylan, as if that would help matters, and it didn't. And Emery shut it down by calling them long-haired hippies, and refused to play any more of their record. It was faintly ridiculous and yet typical of a town whose biggest stars were still greasing their hair into pompadours in 1968. It would take Waylon and Willie and the other outlaws to change that, among other things. The birds would immortalize their encounter in song, which, despite what Emery might say, is most definitely country music. Graham Parsons would later call it simply and inarguably cosmic American music. What makes Ralph Emery's aggressive gatekeeping even more bizarre 
is that stories have circulated for years about Emery's distaste for so-called hillbillies and their music. Emery preferred countrypolitan sounds that bore no trace of the farm or threadbare dresses or picking cotton. Songs laden with symphonic strings and sang by men in suits and women in evening dresses. He referred to hillbillies as billies and seemed to spit at the very mention of them. He became known for a certain pomposity, a certain edge underneath the veneer of a chummy Nashville insider. This veneer was in high gloss when Emery began to court Skeeter Davis. This was the early 1960s, when Skeeter was by far the most famous of the pair, while he was still an up-and-coming country DJ. This should be remembered when considering the myth that Emery pushed in his own autobiography years later, insisting that Skeeter had only married him for his money and his ability to bestow fame. The absurdity of his argument tells us more about Emery than his own questionable version of events. And Skeeter's version is not a pleasant one. Her first red flag, she realized later, was one that flew completely under her radar. They were having a conversation about personal heroes, and Emery mentions that his own is a man named Nathan Bedford Forrest, a figure she's never heard of. She said later that had she known his significance, she would have never married Ralph Emery. Forrest, she found out years later, was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, as well as a slave owner and traitor. He was also implicated in a massacre of over 300 black Union soldiers at Fort Pillow, called by one military historian one of the bleakest events in military history. These soldiers were attempting to surrender, but were massacred regardless by the Confederates, led by Forrest, who some say resolved to massacre all black Union soldiers, many of whom were former slaves. As military custom demanded that soldiers who surrendered be taken prisoner and not summarily executed, the North refused afterwards to conduct any further prisoner exchanges with the South. The incident is still highly debated, with some accounts claiming that Forrest was not present for the massacre and was furious to learn of the killings when he arrived. Apologists also argue that Forrest's involvement with the Klan in its post-Reconstruction guise was a far different animal from its later incarnation. In any case, he is remembered today as a brilliant yet divisive figure, and he is among many Confederate generals whose memorials and even remains have been relocated or removed entirely due to their explicit ties to the South's dismal racial history. It is unclear what aspect of Forrest's life led Emery to name him as a hero, and one can't help but wonder at the inspiration behind the line from drugstore truck-driving man. He's the head of the Ku Klux Klan. Skeeter fell into an easy-going courtship with Emery, even if, at the time, she didn't consider it dating. 
She felt no passion for him, but he was insistent and implacable, calling her while she was on the road to check on her or brag of good deeds done for her sister, only later finding out that none of these good deeds actually took place. She grew close to Emery's son Steve, who took to Skeeter instantly, and with whom he would have a lifelong relationship. In between her frantic schedule and Ralph's exhortations, she could sense a small, still voice saying, This isn't right. This is not God's will for you. But she was finding it harder and harder to reconcile these misgivings with what seemed to be, on paper anyway, a match made in country music heaven. But others around her were not shy in voicing their concerns. A good friend told her that if it would prevent her from marrying Ralph Emery, he would stow her away on Ernest Tubbs' tour bus and send her out of Nashville forever. Her own grandfather, Poppy, took an instant dislike to Ralph when the two visited right after their brief honeymoon, which consisted of little more than a hurried, passionless consummation in a hotel room. During their visit to her family, Poppy took her aside and said, I'm sorry about your marriage, but it just ain't never gonna work. This man don't love nobody else, and he ain't gonna want you loving nobody else either. You can kiss your family and friends goodbye. And on that very same night, Ralph dropped the mask. Driving home, he suddenly mentioned how he didn't think that Skeeter had talked to him enough that day that she seemed too preoccupied with her family to pay him enough attention. He grew increasingly angry and badgered her for miles, and once they arrived home, expected Skeeter to submit to him sexually, with absolutely no attempt at a segue or any consideration of her feelings. This would become the norm in their relationship, and every attempt by Skeeter to address these issues was met with scorn or stony silence. Luckily, her own steady rolling career and now regular appearances on the Grand Ole Opry kept her busy and away from home enough to remind her of who she was outside of her marriage. When she was home, Emery was constantly accusatory, implying that he knew what women like her got up to on the road. He also continued to rail against hillbillies, despising the obviously down-at-the-heel musicians who would drop by WSM to try and convince him to listen to their song or play their record. Skeeter would visit Ralph at the studios after her Aubrey appearances, but ceased doing so after she wearied of watching Emery humiliate one too many musicians. Most of these people came from rural backgrounds, were not at all sophisticated, and Skeeter saw herself poignantly reflected in them. She would often hide in an adjacent office to cry after a particularly cruel episode, and reminding Ralph that she, too, was a hillbilly, seemed to move him none at all. But he sure liked her money, spending it on a house on chic Bellmead Boulevard in Nashville, not even bothering to consult Skeeter on its purchase. He persuaded her to have her hair done in a bouffant and wear expensive gowns purchased at the best shops in Nashville. Image, money, 
sophistication and somehow putting oneself far above the poor, dirty masses seemed to be an obsession with Emery. And the more money she made, the truer this became, despite Ralph's increasing resentment at her success. After her top ten hit My Last Date, Ralph grew ever more unhinged. He began to accuse her of sleeping with everyone in sight, whether man or woman. Skeeter, still naive and full of self-loathing, excused his behavior as normal for a man who knew his wife had been tainted by divorce. She still believed herself to be a fallen woman, unworthy of respect. She even paid for his past due alimony payments to avoid embarrassing litigation, kept her own awards shoved in a closet so as not to upset his delicate sense of manhood, even paid for his plastic surgery. Meanwhile, he begrudged every penny she spent on her own family, calling them freeloaders and idiots, driving her youngest sister away only two months shy of her high school graduation. And then, the beating started. He would hit her with anything. Over the back with a curtain rod, he even held a gun to her head. She discovered he was taking speed and having numerous affairs, one resulting in a child. He refused to allow her to go on tour alone, and shamed her for signing autographs, saying she was common just like the people who loved her music. She began to feel as trapped as she had with the Davises and suffered a breakdown. But this time, as soon as she could leave the hospital, she signed divorce papers. No matter what her level of shame or misguided religious self-loathing, even she finally understood that this was not what she deserved. The divorce was a profound relief, even if it meant that she was not allowed to see Stevie with whom she would rekindle a connection once the boy learned to drive. They would remain close for the rest of their lives. But that would not be the end of Ralph's destructive effect on her life. Even decades after their divorce, he would harass her, knocking on her door with ridiculous demands, even attempting to rape her at one point, having been prevented from doing so by the presence of her housekeeper. The large home on Belle Mead that she had retained from the marriage was broken into, and Skeeter is certain that Ralph was behind it, even calling her the next morning directly after months of no contact, asking her how she was doing in a cloying, sinister manner that left little doubt as to his motivation. But still, she was free, and determined to be much more careful in future about her suitors. In later years, she would maintain her appearances on the Grand Ole Opry and cause a minor scandal when she defended some so-called Jesus freaks who had been arrested while handing out literature in Nashville. Considered hippie troublemakers by the establishment, Skeeter's siding with them was seen as an affront, and she was suspended from the Opry for over a year. She became something of a dependable defender of the underdog, 
sticking up not only for the Flying Burrito Brothers, but also Olivia Newton-John and John Denver, who were derided by Nashville as not real country. She became a vegetarian and was often photographed flashing the peace sign and had another hit with her cover of the anti-war anthem, One Tin Soldier. She refused to visit the Nixon White House after being invited and was one of the first to embrace Charlie Pride, one of the first black country singers and certainly the most successful. She would be nominated for five Grammys and tour worldwide, making repeated trips to Africa where she was wildly popular. But throughout these years, she would still dependably receive forewarnings whenever someone she loved was soon to die. She had become friends with Elvis Presley very early on, when he was still a young man and had yet to join the army. They became fast friends, though Skeeter refused to date him despite his begging. With her, he could be the simple country boy he really was, not the worldly sex symbol he was portrayed as. Their friendship stood the test of time, and one day in summer of 1977, she realized it had been a little while since she had spoken to Elvis. She made a tentative plan to visit, but awoke the morning of August 16, 1977, with that familiar sense of foreboding. She called her secretary and asked her to stop whatever she was doing, because something was very wrong and she needed her. Her secretary was no stranger to these episodes, and she had learned to trust Skeeter's unerring intuition. When she arrived at Skeeter's house, she suggested they take a ride to relax. With Skeeter lapsing into prayer as the feeling of doom quickened, they were listening to the radio, and suddenly the announcer said, The king of rock and roll is dead. Elvis was only 42 years old. Skeeter had a happier last half of life than the first. She met and married well-regarded NRBQ bassist Joey Spompanato in 1987, even recording an LP with the band. She continued to appear on the Opry despite being diagnosed with breast cancer in 1988. She would suffer subsequent recurrences until the disease finally claimed her life on September the 19th, 2004, at the age of 72. Her influence on later female country artists is indisputed, and she counts Bob Dylan and Lou Reed among millions of others as fans. Yet criminally, she has yet to be recognized in the Country Music Hall of Fame while Ralph Emery was inducted in 2007.
Past Arc is written and produced by Carmen Park. Original music by Skillpack.